It's a huge week to be a horror fan. We're so excited that you're here with us. My name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 229. This time around, you are joined by creative mastermind and inspirational builder of worlds, Darren Lynn Bowsman. His latest film is the ninth in the Saw universe. It's called Spiral. The time of release opens only in theaters and IMAX today. We love Darren, and this new film delivers in every way. It is fierce and funny, smart and terrifying. Sit down with us and hear about how Chris Rock's passion for horror and the Saw franchise helped reinvigorate everything. How they designed the traps. Learn about the trap that was filmed and left on the cutting room floor. The newest icon to enter the Saw zeitgeist, Mr. Snuggles. We dive into Darren's sincere love of the art of magic, his next step into immersive theater, Clubhouse, the future of Saab, and John Kramer, plus so much more. Episode 229 with Darren Lynn Bowsman starts now. Hey, this is Darren Lynn Bowsman, and you are trapped in another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. Jigsaw copycat. This is gonna go sideways fast. I'm a man like a spiral. All available units, officer down. That was just a diversion to get us out of the precinct. I need everyone on this case. He could be anywhere. He could be anyone. We're gonna tear this city apart. I'm a man being like a spiral. Hello, Detective Banks. When was the last time you saw your father? Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a returning guest and friend to the show. It's his persistence, perseverance, and inventiveness that found him writing and directing Saw 2 back in 2005, not five years after graduating university. His debut feature set records for Lionsgate, became one of the best opening weekends ever for a horror sequel, and redesigned the toolbox style and approach for everything that came after, from film to TV to music videos and pop culture itself, ushering in escape rooms, a heightened visual aesthetic, and changing our palettes forever. After heading up the next two films and the most successful in the entire franchise, his work took a dark musical turn with 2008's phenomenal award-winning Repo, the genetic opera, The Devil's Carnival, and its sequel. And he's continued to bring bold and thrilling new ideas to the screen with films like 11-11-11, The Barons, 2016's Abattoir, called one of the most original horror movies to come out in years, and most recently, the exquisite St. Agatha and the chilling haunted mystery Death of Me. All that said, perhaps most breathtaking is his advances in development in immersive theater and experiences never before attempted 
from tension, lust, theater macabre, eye confidant, and culminating with One Day Die this past fall, putting audiences in intense and emotional situations that can only be described as euphoric, oftentimes resulting in entire performances just for one audience member. We are lucky to have dreamers like him, as they not only fuel our imagination and push the bounds of creativity forward, but allow us to constantly access new ways of thinking and enriching our lives forever. He's back for the ninth entry in the Saw universe, a pair of detectives lead up an investigation into a series of murders that twist them into an all-new game unlike anything we've seen before, already being referred to as the best in the franchise. And we can attest to this. Spiral stars Chris Rock, Sam Jackson, Mary Saul Nichols, and Max Minghella only in theaters. As of May 13th, we are honored to welcome the great Darren Lynn Bowsman. Yeah! Yeah! Can I just say fuck you? And I'm sorry because that is how you live up to that Like, Nothing I can say. I can come in here and say that I found the cure for every disease known to man, and it still cannot match that height. So, I actually decided that I would like you to just um, be my hype man before I walk into any room. Just give that speech before I walk into any room. Bring, bring us with you, man. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do yeah, it. <laughs> so let's talk about, I mean, God, yeah. there's so much to talk about. The release of this film seems so huge and impactful. Theaters have been struggling to open in some capacity, right, for a little while now. But it's only now that vaccines have become more available and people are slowly starting to safely return to something that resembles normal life. One of those things is the magic of the movies and experiencing them on the big screen. So this was the very first film that we got to see in a theater in over a year. It was extremely emotional for us. And the plot of this one as well has so much gravity to it in regards to the things that it touches on, things that have been amplified during this past year to a deafening degree. And there is a catharsis there on so many levels. And I was wondering if you can comment on that. Wow. Yeah, that's, again, massive hype. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, listen, um, it it feels like a surreal thing. You know what I found? I'll show you guys. a couple of days ago, I was going through a steamer trunk looking for something for my son. Uh, my son's recently gotten into martial arts and uh, I was trying to show him my black belt. And so I opened up, I have these steamer trunks in my office and I was trying to find my black belt. And I found this, which is, which is crazy. I'm going to hold it up to the camera, the desperate. This is from 2001. And this is the script that eventually became saw two. This was the original draft. This was the first draft with all my notes in it. And it's just crazy to look how far I've come when I wrote this and, you know, two decades ago to now still be a part of this franchise. And now, you know, back now making another one with Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson, it it just feels um, utterly surreal, like a fever dream. And uh, I couldn't be more excited to share it with the world. It's just a different take on the Saw universe. It's got all the things you love from Saw, but it's different. It's not the same. And I'm most excited about people getting a chance to, to see that. I think one of the things that is undersold when people talk about the Saw films is the reoccurring theme of family and the importance of that and the things we take for granted when we get distracted, right, with the illusion of the bountifulness of time. And this is something COVID put into perspective for all of us. Has the message of the Saw films, an element particularly amplified, right, in Spiral, had any impact on the way that you live your life? I mean, it has. Um when I, when I was first hired to direct Saw 2 and really explore that backstory of John Kramer and what is John Kramer's backstory, but he's a man with cancer. He's, he, his body is riddled with it. And he's, he's basically looking at all these people 
that he feels are squandering their life, that have taken advantage of their life, be it through drugs or abuse. And he puts them in these impossible scenarios to test themselves. That message resonated with me specifically at that time, because in the year that I was making Saw 2, both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer. So, you know, when I have both of my parents diagnosed with cancer, they're the nicest human beings in the entire world. And then I look around at people that are doing the same things, that are doing drugs, that are smoking, that are, you know, uh, shoving massive amounts of cholesterol in their body. And I've got these two amazing people fighting for their lives. It immediately took that word torture porn and threw it away from me. And it became about something. Yes, it was riddled with violence and gore and blood and there were twists and turns, but it had a message. And I think that why the Saw films have persevered for so, so long and so well with fans is there is a message at the center of all of them. And I think Spiral is no exception. Spiral, again, is kind of uh, packaged in a Saw universe, the Saw DNA, the violence, the puppets. There's a puppet back here from Saw or from Spiral. Um, But at at the heart of the story, it's a story about family. It's a story about secrets kept from, from children. It's a story about a guy living in the shadow of his father. And so I think that, again, once again, the writers, Josh, Pete, Chris Rock, have managed to find a message. It's something that, that transcends the gore and violence into actually say something. Leading off of that, let's talk about Chris Rock's involvement, how that started, what those initial communications were like. Yeah. So Chris Rock, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a crazy story. So I was, um, I was in New York talking to, you, you mentioned I do immersive theater, but I was in New York and I, I just received a contract to direct an immersive show on Broadway, which was my dream. I mean, as someone that loves immersive and it's such a weird, obscure niche kind of thing. So I'm in New York and I, I literally just get the contract and I'm sitting there and the contract is in front of me and um, my phone rings and the phone is from Mark Berg and Mark Berg is the producer of the Saw franchise. And I hadn't talked to him about eight months. So he call, kind of calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, where are you? And I said, I'm in New York. And he said, there's a little pause and he goes, well, I need you back in LA. And I said, Mark, I, I can't, I'm, I'm going to take this job. And he's, he goes, well, I need you to go meet with Chris Rock. And there was a pause and I said, Chris, who like is in, in my mind, couldn't process that Chris Rock. And he goes, Darren, Chris Rock. And I was just silent. And I was like, who is that? And then there was another pause. And he goes, Darren, Chris fucking Rock. I think it was Chris. We need to get back here. And um, so I look at my email and it was just on my cell phone and it just said the organ donor. It didn't say saw. And I've made a couple other films with Mark and Oren that were not saw films. So it was not weird for them to come out with a just different film. I ended up having to go home anyway. So I, I book a ticket back and I start reading the script on the plane and I get to about page 18 and I was like, holy shit, this is a Saw movie. And I had no, like, and by the way, I'm in the air. There's no internet where I'm at. I'm just completely uh, taken aback. The plane lands and I call Mark Berg and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Chris Rock is going to do this. And he goes, that depends on you. You're meeting tomorrow morning at this breakfast spot. So I go to this breakfast place and I sit down and there's Chris Rock. And it was the most surreal experience because I am a huge fan of his comedy, of his movies. And I mean, going back to like Beverly Hills Ninja movies, like I love the guy as a comedian. And I start talking to him and you realize almost immediately he was not only serious, but it was something he was passionate about. He loved the Saw franchise. He loved horror. And immediately we connected and vibed over different ideas. One of his first things he said to me was, he goes, I don't want to change what Saw is. He's like, that's not what I want to do. I just want to interject a little something in there, a little something that we haven't seen before. And he, he asked me to go home and watch 48 Hours again. And I haven't seen 48 Hours in years. So I go and I, I put on 48 Hours and I was like, holy shit, I forgot. 48 Hours is not a comedy like I remembered it. 
it's a gritty police drama that happens to have a little humor in it from Eddie Murphy. So Chris and I continued to talk and we, we kind of had this idea of what if we made Saw more 48 hours and seven and kind of pulled away from some of the other very dense, crazy mythology that had kind of transpired over the last uh, seven, eight films. And then that's how it started. And then Chris and I became friends. We started talking on the phone all the time. The next thing I know, when I'm in Toronto making the ninth installment of the Saw franchise with Chris Rock and Samuel fucking Jackson. <laughs> that's the best story yes. ever. Well, yeah. the humor, like you said, man, yeah. humor is such a different ingredient to this world, right? We've never seen really any moments to laugh at. The Saw films are as serious as a heart attack. The humor seems to ground it so much. That's what we found. And what ways do you feel that that element opens up the experience? When you, when you hear Chris Rock is coming on, there's, there's, a, there's a multitude of emotions that come through. There's the excitement. There's the surreal nature of it. Then there's the fear a little bit about, you know, Saw films have been deadly serious. Um, and if there are jokes in the Saw films, 90% of the time they're unintentional. You know, I remember when we would when we would show screenings of some. By the way, I've changed my glasses three times in the course of this interview. No, so, so, good. <laughs> so, so I just want you to know the continuity of my face is going to be awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, I I remember when we did screenings in the past of like Saw Three. The last thing we want is someone to laugh. And I remember if you would get laughs, you would kind of look at each other, being like, "Oh shit, that's not good." Now we wanted the opposite. We wanted the audience to know it's okay to laugh. We wanted them to know it's okay to have a good time with this, but we did not want it to be a comedy. So it was finding that balance, that tone. And I think what what Chris Rock did so expertly in this film is he doesn't play things for laughs. He's not trying to be funny. His character just is funny. He is, you know, he's jaded. He's, he's in some respects, it's, it's the classic cop cliche that you've seen, whether you're watching uh, Lethal Weapons, uh, not Lethal Weapons. uh, Yeah. Lethal Weapons, the Lethal Weapons series. It's that buddy cop where you have the jaded officer and he wanted to do his kind of spin on that. Uh, And the moment that I read his first kind of monologue, which is a Forrest Gump kind of Reservoir Dogs uh, opening, instead of Like a Virgin with Madonna, we're doing it with Forrest Gump. I was like, dude, this is, this is awesome. And I'll tell you, I got to see it in a theater. uh, And the last time I've actually watched the movie was a year and three months ago in Las Vegas, right before the pandemic hit, we were able to do a test screening. And uh, it was awesome because you have the audience that are completely silent, utterly silent. And then they break out in laughter and the next second they're silent again. And we've never seen that with a Saw film. And I think that it adds a whole other level when the audience knows it's okay to have fun with this movie. I mean, right off the top, as you said, that's the second thing we see. The first thing we see is that that visual language of what we know and love of the Saw films in all its glory. That look you established back in Saw 2. You capture the frenzy of this tension with the way the camera moves and the quick edits and blurring things. It's just fantastic. And you build this phenomenal cold open with this train track scene. Talk about building that for us. One of the things we wanted to do coming off the bat is we wanted to let people know that this has the familiarity of the Saw film. It has the DNA of a Saw film, but it's not a Saw film. And so we wanted to immediately go bigger. We wanted, usually the Saw films are claustrophobic. They're contained, very few extras. Uh, You play on that claustrophobia. So the first idea that we had was let's open it up big. Let's have thousands of people in the first scene. And uh, a funny story. So the first scene has been released. This is not a spoiler. But, you know, the first scene is this this man walking through this street fair and there's hundreds and hundreds of extras. 
we stole those shots. That was a complete guerrilla style filmmaking. We actually got kicked out while we were filming it as we thought that we had permission to be there and we did not. So oh. one of our last days of shooting and uh, we couldn't shoot it again. So we literally were stealing those shots of him running through that. Those are not actors. Those are just people walking on a street fair. So that was uh, that was a crazy thing. But we have this great opening scene of all these hundreds of extras. But then after that, it goes straight into what people would assume a soft film is. It's in a dark claustrophobic tunnel and you have a classic 360 flash framey speed ramped saw trap. And you're like, okay, it's a saw film. And then it goes directly from that to a three minute Chris rock routine. You're like, wait, what the fuck? It's a heist. He's like wearing like, so I love that, that the moment that you, you start to, you have that familiarity, it will change on you a little bit, but it's core. It's DNA. It's always saw. That train track scene, was that built or does that exist somewhere? No, that was, um, you know, one of the things as a director is you're always balancing the budget and time that you have. That was something that I really wanted. I wanted to open up with a, with a bigger trap. I just had this idea of a subway. Uh, we went out and scouted subways, but we were unable to get one. There was one trap, there was one subway that we found, which they said yes to, but it was so hot down there. We were three levels deep and the safety issues of having to turn off the third rail. It was a logistical nightmare. We would have to carry everything down three levels of filming. So instead we did that one where it's like Chris and, and Max walk from upstairs to downstairs. That's all the real subway. But the minute they go onto the tracks, we built that. And what, what I'm really excited about from just a movie making geeky standpoint, that's all forced perspective. That, that is not a big room. That's probably half the size of the room I'm in now. Oh, wow. um, he is standing in a big platform, but everything behind him is full on forced perspective. So the set gets smaller and it's painted to look bigger. So when you're standing, if you would, if you would walk three feet behind him, you're, you're touching your head on the thing. But when the camera is there and it's perfectly framed, it looks like it's like a real subway tunnel, but it's not. Yeah, the whole cast in this film is fantastic, and one of the standouts is watching Chris Rock play a level-headed character that ends up in a downward spiral towards madness almost. You as the director, what are some of the advice you gave to Chris, a typical comedic actor, to play this intense character? You know, Chris really wanted to go there. I think that, you know, there was a lot riding on it for him as well. I I think that, you know, he's trying to, I don't want to say change his image because he's not, but he's trying to change that, that, how every everyone just sees Chris as a comedian um, because he's one of the probably greatest living comedians of our time. And so I think that he really wants to challenge himself. So, you know, I, this was the first of many, he went on to do Fargo after he shot our thing, but he just wanted to, to basically play a serious character, but still have those moments of classic Chris rock, but he was really hard on himself. And I mean, there were, there were scenes that we would film and the next day he'd come back and be like, I, I got to do that again. I can do better. I can, I can do that better. And uh, he would come back and reshoot an entire section of his, his thing because he was constantly trying to improve himself, which I loved. You know, when you're someone as big as Chris Rock, when your best friends are, you know, Jerry Seinfeld or, or Adam Sandler, do you know Bono from U2 called him one time when we were on set? And I was just like, oh my God, like, this guy is gargantuan. And, but that was actually a really funny story. Uh, I'm sidetracking a little bit. We were shooting a scene and he was waiting on a call from his daughters and he had his phone on. And he goes, I'm just letting you know, I got to keep my phone on. I'm waiting for my call from my daughter. I was like, okay. Phone rings in the middle of the take and and Chris goes to the camera and he answers the call, but we're doing it over the shoulder so we can see his cell phone. 
it was it was fucking Bono, Woody Harrelson, Isla Fisher, like this insane group of people at a party, and they're like, "Rock, where are you?" Oh my god, I'm. But I think Chris really wanted to um, go there and do something different, and so he just committed. It was uh, it was great working with him. Yeah, how are the spiral traps conceived? Did they always exist from the initial writing phase, or did the ideas have to be vetted through you to make sure make sure that they could be built and executed? They were not always in the script. If you would ever read a Saw script, the traps are only hinted at. They'll be like, uh, cop trap dies. Next thing, it'll go to the next thing. It won't really say what it is. And it goes through a very, it's a communal, it's like a very community-based process where it goes through the producers, the production designer, the wardrobe, the stunts, the mechanics, the engineers, because we want to make sure that number one, the traps look visually cool. There's something unique that we haven't seen in a Saw film before, and they work, that, that the traps work the way they say they do. So they go through processes where we will see videos and they don't look right or they don't work the way they're supposed to. So I'll give you just an example. Like I knew I wanted to do a glass trap and we were looking at the location we were at. It was a glass factory. One of the locations we shot at, we're like, okay, how could someone die in a glass factory? And then we realized, well, there's a place where they did, they basically recycle these glass bottles. They smash them down, turn them into a fine dust. And we're like, what if we, what if we, had the shoot where the glass goes down into and removed it. So they actually didn't shoot. They're supposed to shoot into like a big bin. What if we removed that? So then the, the engineers built one and then we tested it outside. So there's a, there's a footage, maybe it'll be on the DVD of us outside and they're, they're putting real glass bottles in and those glass bottles are shooting into a wall. And we're seeing that we're seeing glass actually shoot into a wall. We're like, okay, that one's approved. It works the way we say they are move on. And then there are other traps that, that we kind of go down a road and we're like, these don't work. They, they were taking too much of a creative liberty here just to, to telling the audience what they would do. So then we have to kind of scratch those. The traps change up until the moment we shoot them. Uh, you know, it's funny as we're talking about this, I, I just have the most insane shit on my desk. Like, hold on. I love that. I love <laughs> it. You know, we love that. Here's all the fingers from the finger trap that I took home with me. Oh, oh that's so my great. gosh. That's amazing. Oh, I, I forget that I have some of the stuff and I have, and I have little kids that just come into my, uh, that's come into my room. And, but, uh, <laughs> uh, no, but like, for example, that, that trap, the finger trap that went through numerous incarnations because we wanted the original idea was the finger trap. You put your two fingers in, you can't pull them out. And then we, we, we worked on different material. I remember the production designer brought into my office one time, this like um, mesh and he puts it on my finger and goes, get it off. And I'm pulling and it's cutting my fingers. It's literally cutting it. And, uh, you know, the only way to get it off is you kind of have to, you have to push it from the other side, which opens that other side out. And then we went through, well, what if it's on a pulley system? So he can't get that. He can't get that resistance. And what would that do? Well, the first thing it would do is it would, it would de- it would deglove your finger. But if there was enough pressure on it, it would pop the knuckle and break the bone. So then we started, we started looking at that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fun, albeit very sad, disturbing process to go through this. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize this is incredible. Well, that's part of the reason they <laughs> wow. feel so real, you know, yeah, they're like well researched. Yeah, exactly. So was there any yeah. trap idea that you had for this one that you didn't make the cut or that you had to like, Oh God, it's too gory or it's too much. We cut an entire scene out, uh, an entire trap scene out, which was a huge kind of bummer for me. We were having huge problems with the MPA this time. And I'm not even sure why, because I don't think in any respect, this is the most violent Saw film, uh, but I think it may be the most widely accessible Saw film in the way that you have two huge superstars, plus Max Minghella bringing in a whole different side of audiences. I think the MPAA was really on the 
offensive when they heard we were coming in. And so there was a scene that took place in the third act. I won't say who it was, but another character dies. And um, it was by far the most gruesome, 100%. It was also the most mean-spirited. So when we were looking at it, we're like, you know what? This, the, the movie can completely exist without this in here. And uh, we ended up losing it at the very end. I would say in the last week before we locked the edit. So there was one scene that was completely cut. And I, again, that now I'm, I'm happy for that actor because now he survived. He didn't originally. Now he can come back if there's. Um, can we see it on a DVD release? Like, I, I need to see it. I'll show you something. Hold on. Hold on. There, there, there were a lot of traps that did not make the cut that we had. We had ideas on that. We we're like, what if we did this? That just never ended up making it. But there was only one trap this time that was shot that ended up getting cut. Um, hold on. I'm going to show it to you. Okay, here we are. I'm getting close, getting close, getting close. Okay, I found it. <laughs> okay. That is a guy's face that's completely, that his entire face is come oh, off. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, shit. That's oh, better, better crazy. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, so it is, you know, it, there was, there was definitely some, there was definitely some gore that was cut out. And also, we had the hardest time this time around with the MPAA. The skinning scene and the finger trap scene, they kept coming back. Like, I think we cut out two thirds of what was there. Um, in the original edit, you saw every finger break, every bone pop, compound fractures. Uh, they, they, they were not fans of that scene at the MPA. <laughs> well, I got to say, all that stuff still, it still retains yeah. its impact. It didn't yeah. lose oh, yeah. anything in yeah. the translation. I, I can guarantee yeah. you that. Yeah. When we saw it, yeah. they brought us cookies, which looked amazing before watching the movie. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, do they not realize that Darren Lynn <laughs> made this movie? Like, I can't. Cookies for after. That's an yeah, after. Exactly. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. The last house on the left. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Take as only much as you can. Only a And then we got to talk about this new piece of iconography, right? You created Mr. Snuggles, the, the marionette puppet. Tell us about him. Oh, Mr. Snuggles. Incredible. Um, so um, let me see if I can pull something up for you. And I'm not sure if I have this, but, you know, um, one of the things that I was really adamant about was we have more iconography that fans could latch on to that was similar but different. Originally in the script, there was no puppet. It, in the first draft of the script, the original pig that was in the, edge, the other Saw films was still the one doing everything. Um, he was, uh, you know, we had the hood on, the pig, the hair, and he had a needle. And I said, we have to change this up. I want a new pig. And I wanted uh, something that was much more horrific and realistic looking. So, I, you know, we were able to get this, this pig, the, the, the one that you see. And then I was like, you know what? This whole thing revolves around the police department. I was like, let's make a cute pig puppet. And everyone was like, that's ridiculous. No. And so I took it upon myself in the final week of prep to go out and have one created. I had a, a artist draw out what I wanted. I had him animate it. 
And then I brought it to the producers and I was like, how can you say no to this? And then they looked at it and they still weren't sure. But then I pitched them how this pig tied into the very last shots of the movie. And then they finally got it. They're like the marionette angle of it. They're like, okay, we get it. But yeah, that I was excited. That was my biggest win on the saw. This, the spiral this time around was getting this pig puppet. And then something else also remarkably different is the sound of this movie. First of all, it's yeah. got to be seen in theaters because of the sound. I think it's the first, is it the first Saw movie recorded yeah. in Dolby Atmos? Dolby well? Atmos, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that it's, it's always been, uh, you know, something that I really, as a, as a filmmaker, not only passionate about, but I'm very vocal that, that I want people to see this in the theater. You can do so safely. Obviously, the world is in chaos right now. Don't endanger yourself by going to see this in the theater, but if you have the ability to, it is such a different experience than watching it at home. It's mixed in Dolby Atmos. Charlie Clouser's score is just pounding the entire time. And it's, it's an assault on the senses, which I love. When you go into a theater, I want that 90 minutes of holy fuck. And I think that we do it this time with the Dolby Atmos, with the screaming, the colors by Jordan Oram, the DP, the Charlie Clouser score. It's something that I really want you to witness in a theater. Now, Charlie's score, too, it, it sounds completely different from anything he's done in a soft film before his instrumentation yeah. takes on new flavors there's scenes in the daylight so we get out of those dark spaces and and his tone changes it gives the weight of when you do descend and the more, the more familiar elements of the saw score and the sounds of that the universe come back it just sinks you it just sinks you into the seat. Tell us about your experience hearing the final score and what he did and how he changed it. So I love, I mean, I've loved Charlie Clouser from the beginning and, and he was one of my first really big um, requests from the producers about who we're going to keep and who we're going to go different with. And um, Charlie was, was all of ours. He has to come back. I met with Charlie very early on before I left to go to Toronto. And I said, you know, Charlie, I love your music, but I don't want to hear the familiar sonic sounds because Charlie has made a motif and saw one through eight. And there's a lot of reoccurring themes that you'll be able to hear. And what I did not want to do was have people be like, oh, that's from Saw 2. That's from Saw 3. I wanted it to be new. And I said, take Hello Zep and keep that. We're going to keep Hello Zep, um, which, is the, which is the big twist song at the end. And I said, let's, re- let's retract the very beginning and give me new things. And so he has a lot more, it's a lot more action driven. It's a lot more, he was even using dubstep kind of beats in it this time to give it more of that like fresh urban feel, which I love, but at its heart, it is a saw score. It has the same instrumentation just done differently and it's bigger, you know, and I I was able to do the director's commentary with Charlie just last week. And it's awesome hearing his process because unlike a lot of uh, composers that will sit in the room and, and do a MIDI keyboard or, you know, pull rips, He's using his entire house as the musical instrument. He's got like staircases that have like metal hanging on it. He'll bang on his walls, bang on these metal things, open and close doors and windows to get those sounds. Uh, So watching Charlie like do the music, it's literally watching him abuse his house. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are some uh, references to Saw movies and uh, fun Easter eggs. I pointed out uh, the Pulp Fiction reference to Lauren. Yeah, that was awesome. (laughs) Are there uh, many more sprinkled throughout the film awaiting discovery? Uh, There are um, a lot of stuff in the background. um, A lot of things spray painted. We had this awesome guy uh, and I'm totally blanking on his name, which I hate because he was such a such a great guy who is a graffiti artist. And um, we would graffiti a lot of stuff in the background of shots. 
a lot of Easter eggs for fans of my immersive theater work that I've put logos up there, sigils, phrases, and there are pictures of previous Saw cast members kind of sprinkled throughout. There's a couple of Pulp Fiction nods in the movie. So yeah, I mean, I always find Easter eggs fun just from a rewatch value to go back and be like, oh shit, the safe door says Vincent and Jules or things like, and there's so many of those kind of things in there. And there's meta things all over it. Chris Rock brought the meta with like, oh, that's some New Jack City shit. Well, he's in New Jack City. So, right. <laughs> you know, there's some stuff like that as well, which has never been, never been in the Saw film. I mean, it's no secret. You love magic and you give... Mm-hmm. Chris Ramsey from True TV's Big Trick Energy, a hilarious and pretty scary role in the film, too. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually sitting here playing with Chris Ramsey's deck. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Chris Ramsey is, uh, I've been a fan of it. I mean, here's here's the reality. Um, I am a movie geek more so than a movie director where I geek out and I bring in people that I'm fans of just so I can hang out with them. Uh, I've done it in the Devil's Carnival films by bringing in Adam Pascal of Rent or Ted Neely of Jesus Christ Superstar, just people that I like that I want to hang out with. I'm a huge magic fan. And early, about maybe early 2019, before I even knew I had this movie, I reached out to Chris Ramsey because I was on a huge magic kick and I was watching all of his YouTube tutorials. And I said to him, Hey, I'm a director. If I ever do a movie, I'd love to put you in it. And Chris responded back, Yeah, that sounds great. Very much like, Fuck you, kid. He probably thought I was an insane person. Cut to three months later, I emailed him again. I said, hey, Chris, I've got a role for you. It stars opposite Chris Rock and Max Minghella. I need you in town in a week. Are you interested? And he put, holy fuck, yes. And I wrote back, <laughs> only if you teach me these three tricks that I can't figure out on a YouTube channel. And he's like, fine. So it was awesome. Ramsey came on set. And uh, the first thing I made him do was show me these tricks. And then he got to go do a scene with Chris Rock. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> nice. about your, like, how deep does your love of, of magic go? I mean, are you... Uh, well, I don't know if I can show you. Well, let me see if I can take you on a tour of my office. Yeah. Okay, so so all of these books that are hanging on my wall. See, it's so hard with this fucking camera. Hold on. All of these books are magic books, and there's rows and rows and rows of them. They're all old, from, a lot of them from the 1800s. This entire side right over here is all magic tricks. Like, it's... Here, I'll show you something. Here's, here's how into magic I am. Hold on. I'm going to put this down. I have boxes of decks of cards. Like there, there are 50 decks in here. And I have three of these boxes of just, just decks of cards. So, oh you know, and, I, and by the way, I have regular cards. I have horror cards, Nightmare on Elm Street cards. Oh, that's great. Wow. Uh, so, so yeah, I, um, I love Matt. I mean, my entire desk, if you could see it, it's just littered, littered with uh, card tricks. So I, uh, Am I good? Not necessarily, but I, I love it. And it's, uh, it's become a kind of my midlife crisis to just learn as many tricks as humanly possible. Is there one trick that you've seen? Like, what's the coolest magic trick you've ever seen or, or an experience you've had? One I saw last or... night. One I saw last night. So there's a guy named Daniel Garcia. Daniel Garcia. Why? Fuck you, camera. <laughs> this camera is not like, hold on, you got to be in the exact perfect position. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. So it's the um, director the and you. Last night just, just killed me. It was, um, this is a guy named Daniel Garcia, who I've worked with. And Daniel Garcia is one of those fans that I was a fan of. I reached out to him and we started collaborating together. He did a trick which completely, he's like the, one of the world's best sleight of hand artists, but he, he's, he works with David Blaine. He worked with David Copperfield. He's worked with everyone and helping in their trick creation. But he basically goes, here, Darren, pick out, pick out any four cards of the deck. And so I picked out like four threes. And he goes, okay. And he has the four threes. 
And he goes, no, pick out a random card. And I picked out a random card. It was a six. And he goes, okay, put the four threes in the deck. And I put the four threes in the deck. And then he goes, and he has the six and he puts it down on the table. And he goes, how crazy would it be if those, if I switch places with the card? And I was like, what? And then all of a sudden, the, the one card he put down turned into the four threes. And the one card that I put back in, the four fucking threes, is now the six in the deck. So somehow he was able to switch the two cards and did it so just like he is an amazing Daniel Garcia is, is the just one of the most insane magicians. And so getting to work with him, I mean, just, I, I, I get to work with people that I like and it, it just makes my career fun. Oh my God. That's incredible. Man, is that wow. a feeling that's that amazing. feeling of, of seeing a trick like that happen? Is that something that you chase in your own work? It is. I mean, all the song movies are magic tricks where you, you hope to trick the audience. You hope that they, they know when you come into a movie, there's going to be some sort of, of, of twist. The hope is you can keep the twist till the very end and they'll go back and figure out, try to rewatch it to figure out if you know, if they can figure out what you're doing. So whenever I saw Saw 1, it was 100% a magic trick. It was a magic trick. No one knew Jigsaw was on the floor. So when he stood up, you're like, oh my God. And I got the same feeling I do when I see a David Blaine do something. You incorporated elements of magic and magicians in One Day Die, yeah. which is something that you did right at the at the tail end of last year something that i kill myself over not being able to take part in and i've only heard so much acclaim about what that full experience was like sending out those customized boxes transporting audiences right over zoom with a platform that you guys invented created and built from scratch to give people this experience we built a custom-made platform with these guys uh, out of Florida called Purple Rock Scissors. That they, um, it was basically a platform that had numerous rooms. So you had you had numerous rooms you can go into: foyer, basement, bedroom, seance room. And so, as an audience throughout the entire two-hour journey, you could click from room to room and interact with the actors in real time. But you had to use this box that was sitting in front of you, and you knew you had to solve the box in ninety minutes. So depending on what room you were in and who you decided to talk to would determine how your night went. But the box was designed by Daniel Garcia, the guy I was just talking about in Blake Voigt. The boxes were designed to be magic tricks. So you would get this box and you would open it up and there was hair and teeth in these blood like papers in it. And um, each, each thing in the box had a dual purpose. So like, let's say you would read a note that was covered in blood and it would say a poem on it. But later on, you would realize that if you lit that paper on fire, like half the words would go away and give you a completely different message. There was another one that like if you submerge something in water, all the ink would change to a map. The, the, one of the coolest parts of the box was after you use the entire box, you're told they're listening to you destroy the listening device. And you realize the box had a false bottom. So if you figured out by putting a pencil underneath the box, you could push the bottom up and there was an actual recording device inside there that if you rewound it, you can listen to messages on it that we left. So it was a, it was a really cool immersive thing, which again, I love, I love putting the audience in the center of the story that they feel like they're characters. They feel like they can help manipulate the narrative. And I think that that's what these immersive shows do. Where the fuck do you take it from here with all that you've developed in immersive theater? What's next? Well, I have an idea. It's, you know, it's if someone will give me the, the resources to do it, but I, I would love to do a project that exists on top and after a movie. And what I mean by that is, Imagine um, you see, I'm just making something up. You see a bank heist and you see 
three guys robbing a bank and they're fucking crazy. They've got shotguns, they're shooting. And throughout this bank heist, they're getting phone calls. And you, you see him getting these phone calls and text messages. And like, we have 60 seconds, 60 seconds, get out of the bank. And they get out of the bank and they're all killed by the police. And the movie continues. Now, if you were to leave the movie theater and go home, you can access another storyline that exists on top of that movie. So now you're able to see the messages that were sent to those guys in the, in the bank who were the villains. And in those messages, it says your kid will be executed in 60 seconds unless you pull off this bank heist. You know, we've got your wife. We will slit her throat in less. So now as an audience member, when you saw the movie, these three guys were villains. But when you leave the movie and you go back and research things, you realize they were not the villains. They were victims. And so using multi-linear storytelling, you know, using emails, phone calls to, to basically put things on top of movies that will change the audience's perception of what they just saw. That's what I, that's what I really want to do. That's incredible. Have you played much? Wow. Are, are you into VR or Oculus at all and going down that route? Oh, there we go. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I use my nice. Oculus every day. Before, in fact, before we were on the call, I was on my Oculus. So I, I use it every day. I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And I, I think there is... You know, a lot of a lot of the same reasons that, that horror films kind of get a bum rap. I think that sometimes video games do, too, because what a video game is, has the ability to do from a storytelling standpoint and from a narrative standpoint, I have felt more engaged in certain games than I do movies because you have you as a as a as a, as a viewer are able to participate in the story. You are able to make choices. So it feels more personal to you. It's not just a movie that's flickering 90 minutes on the screen. And you really have nothing to do with it, but you can change outcomes. There was a game a while ago I played called Heavy Rain, one of my favorite games ever, because every aspect of the story I was able to decide and and maneuver. And to me, I want to see more gamification of movies. You've been an early adopter of uh, the Clubhouse app. What has your experience been like at that? What do you like about it? I got addicted. I have an addictive personality. So when I see something, I just, I get addicted to it. So I probably spent way too much time on club. My wife almost divorced me. <laughs> um, what I like about clubhouse is for a multitude of reasons. One, I feel like there's always this gate between fans and creators. A lot of times creators can never converse with fans. I mean, yes, if you're on Instagram or Twitter, you can respond to them, but to actually have conversations. Secondly, as a fan of certain people, I've been able to, like, I'm huge in the magic. And so there's a lot of magic rooms. I'm able to talk to some of the creators of some of the tricks that I own and actually converse with them on a, on a stage that I never would get to talk to these people before. So I think that it kind of breaks down the walls and allows everyone to be on the same kind of field and everyone can speak to one another. I like it. It's a real time. It's a more personal thing to me um, than a lot of these other social media apps because it's real time and you can't hide behind filters or thinking out the perfect 180 characters. It's, it's real. You're just talking to people. And I like that. It might feel a little premature talking about the future when this thing is just coming out. And I know you do not like talking about sequels. You guys are, the whole camp is very superstitious about that. And we understand that said, how important is it that people go and see this movie if they can safely vaccinated, of course, to uh, the future of this franchise. It's critical. I mean, listen, I think that I have found a renewed interest in the Saw universe where I thought that it was played out and I'd done everything I could. Getting a chance to work with, with people like Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson has kind of reinvigorated my love for these types of stories and what can be done with them. 
So I think that there's a lot more to tell and a lot more that I would want to tell. But we're in a weird position now, you know, with all of these movies being released day and date, you know, whether it be Godzilla or Mortal Kombat or Dune that's going to be coming out. I, I think that the theater going experience is sacred. Nothing, you know, I have a, I have a big screen TV. I have surround sound, but I'm distracted in my own home. I have dogs that bark. I have kids that yell. I have Twitter messages going off constantly. My phone is ringing. Uh, the ring doorbells are going off. You're never truly there. You could say you're there, but you're not. Pause the movie. I'm going to go to the bathroom. And when I'm in the bathroom, I might check Instagram. And that pulls me out of that story. So I think it's critical that, that the theater experience is held sacred because, you know, there is, there, to, to, to detach yourself from the nonsense of your everyday life, from the screaming kids, from the news stories, everything like that, and sit in a, a sacred place with like-minded moviegoers is something, there's, there's no comparison to that. So I hope that people continue to support the cinema. And even if this comes on VOD tomorrow, which it's not, I would much rather to go to the, to go back to the movies in a safe way. You recently begged Lionsgate to give you the keys to the Leprechaun franchise. Those fuckers. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to take. Like I have no idea what it's going to take. And I was actually on a conference call with him the other day. And every time I can, I drop something in there. Like they'll be like, Hey Darren, what are you doing? And I'll be like eating lucky charms. Speaking of lucky charms, you know, what would be a great reboot. The fucking leprechaun franchise. And they're not amused by my antics. I'm telling you right now, they do not find any humor in it. Like they, they just will not even acknowledge it. I, I don't get it. The last one was actually really good. <laughs> was it leprechaun returns? It was uh, Steve Kostansky made that. It yeah, did that psycho yeah. gore man, which was phenomenal. Yeah. What would you do with the franchise? What? I would not go try to reboot it. I would make a direct sequel um, and I would bring back Warwick Davis. And I mean, here's the thing is I love nightmare on Elm street and I like Jackie or Haley, but Jackie or Haley is not my Freddy. It's fucking Robert England. And so, you know, I think that when you, when you created the Leprechaun franchise, you had such a charismatic, crazy per- person as Warwick Davis, he became my Leprechaun. I don't want to try to put someone else in it. I want to go back with him and I want him to go to the old West. I want him to go to the Colorado gold rush. And I want like, he's going to find a time machine. It's going to be silly. It's going to be ridiculous. It's going to be bloody. And, and I just want to have fun with it. And I, 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 uh, I don't understand. Just give me a couple million dollars and let Warwick and I go. That's all I'm asking for. Put pot of gold yes. and Warwick Davis. Yes. <laughs> before I die, before I'm gone, I will 100% get them to give it to me. I'm positive. For the screenings, I don't know if it's a secret or not, but I've heard that you may be making and some of the crew may be making surprise appearances at some of these screenings coming up this weekend. Is there truth to that? I'm 100%. I'm going to Austin tomorrow. Going to be at the Alamo Draft House in Austin. Uh, Josh is going to be at the AMC Burbank, I believe. Um, we are going to be, we are going to be, uh, I know Chris is hitting the theaters in New York. So yeah, we absolutely will be out there. I, we plan on being somewhere every single day in this first week of, of them. So you never know where we're going to pop up, including out of state. I'm going to the Midwest on one of the screenings. So we will be at different places. So Go to the theater, put your mask on, and uh, come see Saw on the IMAX. What are you feeling about what people are saying about this movie at this point? I mean, here's the, here, it's a double-edged sword because there's been so much great early buzz, and then there's been so much hate. I read a, I read a review this morning uh, that gave it zero stars and said what? it was an abomination of cinema and the worst movie made. Oh, and then, 
No uh, way. That's that. That's an IGN exclusive right there. And then I'm like, you know, is it really the worst movie ever made? Uh, but then you look at other people that are like, you know, it's the best. It's the best sequel in the franchise. So, you know, I think I would rather have a movie that that is that is again so polarizing that everyone's like, eh, it's fine. So it's definitely going to be a polarizing film. I, I think that Tobin Bell, John Kramer has had such an impact on so many years that it is a shock when you go into the movie and it's not that it's not John Kramer's story this time. So I think if you go in with the expectations to see Saw 9, you're not it's not what it is. It is the ninth installment of a Saw franchise, but it's not Saw 9. And so I think you've got to detach yourself from the previous eight films and go into this as a side story. Just because Spiral exists does not mean there will never be a Saw 9. It just means this is a diverge this is this is a different path. But those that love it fucking love it and I love that. Speaking of that and the reverence that people yeah. have for the character that Tobin Bell helped bring to life, this John Kramer, right? So iconic. As you're talking about, like your Warwick Davis, right? Your leprechaun. Do you think that there's a place for Tobin Bell in future Saw movies? Yeah, 100%. And I think that you will, you're not done seeing Tobin Bell at all. What I think will happen if this is successful is you'll see Spiral 2, and then you'll see Saw 9, and then you'll see Spiral 3, you'll see Saw 10. You might see a TV series. So I think that you're going to start seeing the Marvel verse of the Saw franchise where there are different storylines taking place. Just because WandaVision exists does not mean she will appear in Ant-Man versus Wasp Girl, whatever that is. And I think that that's what it's going to be. It will exist in the same universe and there will be different storylines taking place. Darren, dude. Yes. Thank you yes. so much. Blue crew. You know what? Can I tell you how sad I am that I'm not at that wonderful abode? Next time we next time we do one of these things on Saw 19, let me come to the house with the merry-go-round and the crazy scary pictures. Please, uh, dude. It would yeah. be so great. <laughs> Always great to talk to the Boo Crew. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 229. Special thanks to our guest, Darren Lynn Bowsman. Follow him at Darren Bowsman on Instagram and Darren underscore Bowsman on Twitter. The time of release, his new film, Spiral, is only in theaters and IMAX now. Music from Charlie Clouser, production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shen, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shen. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.